Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. I'm Mill Snell, one of your hosts, uh, joined by Michael Girdley and usually Bill D'Alessandro. Acquisitions Anonymous is the number one uh, podcast on the internet for small business M&A. And we're kind of giggling in the background because if you're on YouTube and watching this, not just the audio, you get to see some amazing swag that Michael Girdley has on today. It's, it's my Halloween costume. I'm a Chili's employee. It's Chili's hat. Chili's shirt and even Chili's socks. Yeah, I got Chili's socks. So good, good times today. We're having fun, and we're joined by a really, really cool guest. Uh, I've been really excited about Michael Yarmo joining us. Michael is with New Point Advisors, uh, and he does turnaround work, which I feel like is the kind of redheaded stepchild of the SMB community because we don't know what we don't know, and that seems really scary. So he's going to come demystify it a little bit today. Michael, really glad you're here, man. No, thanks. And uh, uh, Mike uh, is making me hungry with the uh, with the chili swag. I think I'm gonna have to uh, <laughs> oh. make I make a stopover after uh, after this podcast is done. Yarmo gets guests of the week. That's what this is about. <laughs> Way to go, Yarmo. Well, Michael, give us give us a little intro on you, kind of a one minute snippet on who you are and kind of what brings you uh, into your current line of work. Yeah, I've been uh, formally in the uh, turnaround restructuring um, distress P- PE sector for about about five years now, working out of a um, as a managing partner with a Chicago-based turnaround restructuring firm called uh, New Point Advisors. We personally do um, a, a lot of uh, capital advisory work where we're uh, either completely taking over the companies from a uh, capital stack and um, management point of view, um, or kind of riding alongside current management to get them out of whatever uh, funk they're in at. It might be a um, a capital input or just straight up uh, us working on a on a fixed fee basis. We do dozens and dozens of kind of small to medium sized turnarounds, anywhere from you know hundred million dollars down to probably about five million dollars in to- uh, in top line, uh, or about twenty million in senior debt or less. So kind of that sweet spot in the in the middle. Uh, anything smaller than that is probably too too small of a nut for us to crack and can't get turned around quickly enough. Anything larger than that, there's uh, other firms out there who uh, who have already established a much stronger niche. So we feel like that the, this uh, space is um, is really kind of a sweet spot for us. I got awesome. into this, yeah, I got into this um, uh, industry actually through uh, running my own food uh, frozen food logistics company. Um, so I had done that for five years pr- uh, prior to that. A couple of partners and I found a struggling Italian bakery distribution company um, who had several trucks and you know many many points of distribution uh, but owners had been running the company for many many years and really had not put a lot of effort into the company kind of came into the office yep the lights were still on yep here's my check and thank you i'll see you in two weeks from now and in a very super competitive business like food distribution just can't uh you can't be in a situation where you're you're half-assing it so uh, mm-hmm. we, we came in uh brought some new new ideas did a lot of uh, channel strategy and tech upgrades and really kind of uh, brought some fresh uh, fresh eyes in the business. Ran it, uh, I was personally running it as the, in the president role for, uh, for se- uh, several years, and then we ended up selling it after, after a successful exit. That's so cool. Well, I have a million questions, but we're going to hold that thought. Michael has a word from one of our sponsors, and then you've brought some really cool deals that I can't wait to, uh, to talk about and, and be able to delve into. Yeah. Super cool. Well, the best guests are the ones that bring deals. So thank you, Michael. Makes us <laughs> makes us better hosts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so you know, for our listeners, we're on a never-ending quest to have this podcast break even. And we have two sponsors this week that are helping with that. So we'll talk about one now and one later. But the first one is our first 
Mills Renewal uh, sponsor who's come back because their sponsoring has been so successful of the podcast, and that's uh, tinyacquisitions.com. I will pull up their website for those of you that are online. Uh, if you're looking to buy a small business or a tiny business, that's what tinyacquisitions.com does. So those folks have been with us for a while. They're less than 10K, smaller type projects. And it's typically somebody that has you know built something, maybe got a few customers, but never really had it go beyond that. So techies are selling businesses on that and stuff like that. Uh, and you are typically a buyer, like a marketing specialist or somebody that's good at, at hustling and making a business grow. Um, they have thousands of online businesses that sell for less than $5,000. And there's a click, slick, click, one click button uh, to buy those products and um, start cash flowing immediately. So a great thing if you're looking for a side hustle, especially in the digital space. Thank you to uh, tinyacquisitions.com because they're a great place for our listeners to consider that if you're wanting to uh, kind of dip your toe in the water to to do acquisitions. So over to you, Mills. Awesome. Thanks. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick it back to Michael for the first deal here. And we'll we'll delve into some more kind of nuanced questions once you get into this, Michael. But just briefly before you before you start, I want to make sure that I'm framing this correctly. And this may be an oversimplification. A company can be distressed in one of two ways, right? It its balance sheet can be underwater or it's and or its income income statement could be underwater, right? Yeah, those are uh, you, you know generally speaking, yeah, those are the, those are the two ways. Balance sheet means uh, they're unable to make their loan payments. It all it all flows back to um, you being unable to satisfy your creditor claims. The source of that could be a balance sheet reason you took on too much debt and you couldn't grow your way out of it, uh, which we see all the time. Or you have, uh, you have lousy business operations and your cash flow uh, ends up being negative. You know, it's either a COVID impact or bad management or a change in your industry. And that relates to you have a reasonable amount of debt on your balance sheet, but your income statement just does, doesn't generate enough cash uh, for you to satisfy your creditors. And all of a sudden yep. the bank or the IRS or, you know, pick your, you know, pick your uh, creditor um, channel comes knocking on your door saying, hey, you didn't pay up and they're going to take some type of action, whether they're secured or unsecured. Yep. All right, cool. Well, give us the first deal. So, uh, you know, first, uh, first deal, uh, you know, it was a Interesting case. It was a company called uh, Peeled Snacks, and you know, oftentimes we do uh, tend to keep the deals um, generalized in terms of the name. But this one actually hit the Wall Street Journal, so we I'm able to t- uh, talk about this one a little more, a little more freely. This is a company uh, based out of uh, Rhode Island, had a really nice pro- line of products, all in the uh, CPG industry. Uh, dried fruits uh, and a bunch of other kind of snacking products sold through. You know the targets and the WalMarts of the world and the Amazons, uh, really good uh, e-commerce business, but also airports, hotels, schools, and all of a sudden when COVID comes around and kids are staying home, people are not traveling. You know, airports and hotels are closed down. All of a sudden, you know, fifty percent of your revenue is gone, and that that was the kind of the the kind of the start of starting to un- uncover what was happening with this company. When we were approached by the uh, not only the senior creditor on the uh, on the file, but also the PE company that had been uh, owning it, we also discovered that the margins were were frankly just terrible. Um, they were one of the first uh, companies into the organic space many many years ago, but never priced themselves like an organic business. So you know, if you go to a grocery store and you um, you know you go to Whole Foods, you know they they have that term whole paycheck. 
Uh, well, there's a reason for that, right? You know, a lot of their goods are organic, uh, you know, uh, good for you. Well, these guys had priced themselves like a like a regular brand uh, that had had to incur the cost of an organic uh, organic grower. And those lousy margins combined with the ex- huge cost of trying to build up a brand uh, led to uh, negative cash year after year after year. But their their well-to-do uh, owner uh, owners uh, driven by this uh, PE company had uh, funded the losses every single year. And all of a sudden, when COVID comes in and wipes out uh, whatever growth had uh, had been going on, they took a step back and said, I don't want to fund the losses anymore. And all of a sudden, the, um, you know, the secured lender on the file puts up their hands and says, uh, I'm not liking what I see here. I'm not getting my uh, principal and interest uh, payments back on all the uh, money I've uh, forwarded to you guys. And all of a sudden, it shows up on our radar. So that's often how the deal flow works is uh, we're either getting a call from directly from, from you know, senior creditors or from um, insolvency attorneys um, who have all of a sudden been pulled onto the file to say, hey, this company's in trouble. They're going to need some type of uh, legal work. And, you know, insolvency attorneys for his, uh, for all their skills are not turnaround professionals and they're not necessarily business people. They need somebody to come in and actually take a look at how do I fix my balance sheet? How do I fix my income statement? And it's either one of the two or, or often more often the case, both. You know, we uh, we enter the file and again, we doing more research on the company. We ended up finding uh, fraud on, uh, on the file where um, the uh, kind of the management before us had uh, had lied on some loan documentation and a business that was just way overspending for uh, for its size. It wasn't even like it wasn't even close. It, it wasn't even like spending for uh for growth and hoping that uh, the, uh, the investors would kind of pick up the tab it was they were just spending way 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 outside of what any reasonable um, startup and they weren't even really a startup they were a 20 year old company or uh, were uh, really willing to do so we came in and said okay we think we can fix a lot of this uh so, uh, however michael real fast how how did you know that that you know that that spending was out of line you know when you first took a look at the deal yeah, I, I, I have a CPG uh, background myself, whether coming through my own food companies or, um, you know, uh, earlier in my career, I'd uh, worked in a, a big a big CPG and uh, uh, big corporate firms. And I, I kind of knew right off the bat when you're spending 70% of, uh, of your uh, revenue on marketing, mm. that's probably not a good metric. I think anybody, you know, with half a brain could probably see that pretty quickly. Uh, but if you're spending 70% year after year after year, on brand building and it's it's not relating to uh you know more brand awareness that's a case where uh, it's probably a probably a good time to to relook at that and have that flow back into you know improving the balance sheet and getting your senior creditors paid down how uh i mean how, uh, this this was owned by private equity with some pretty smart investors how did they let that keep happening Great, great question. Uh, I think it was a case where everybody thought this brand would be a lot bigger than it was uh, was going to, and it was growing at a decent clip, but not a a, not a not a you know tech clip, uh, especially when you're spending seventy percent of your revenue on marketing. Uh, It wasn't. It it was never growing quickly enough, and they were constantly trying to rejig the strategy to find find new ways to get get it growing quicker. So, Michael. Quantify for us what was their revenue kind of you know top tick when when things were still growing and sales were happening on all channels. What did it 
you know, what did it decline to and, and kind of how did that decline actually manifest itself? Was it one, you know, immediate in one quarter or kind of gradually over time? And then from a net income basis, what was happening cash flow wise in the business? Yeah, uh, it got up to 25 million, um, you know, in the, in the good old days of 2019 uh, and then dropped quite quickly to, um, you know, to about 10 to 12 million uh, after wow. all the, yeah. So it was a, uh, that's that's probably what gave the you know the the ownership pause to say uh, I can't fund this anymore. Um, you know it dropped from a slightly break even uh, company to a two and a half million dollar loss pretty pretty quickly. It was really you know we all we all know what uh, you know how COVID impacted the world. It was really a quick night cut to the uh, 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 for them that you know over one quarter the bank takes uh, takes a look at their files and says oh my god what uh, what happened to this company? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was you know. Q3 started uh, started rolling into the to the banks. It was pretty obvious that this company was in serious trouble. And what what like relative level? You don't have to talk specifics if you can't. But what's kind of a ballpark amount of you know debt that they had outstanding as this was happening? Yeah, it was about seven million dollars in in total debt. So just below where we needed to um, you know to file a subchapter five filing because uh, that's about seven and a half million dollars and and above so they were just kind of under that threshold that gave us pause to say hey you know what we can actually fix this balance sheet through the court systems that would be probably the best most efficient way and uh, we can actually get them through pretty quickly um, with uh, with a subchapter five filing so what what does that mean and you can talk to me like I'm five years old because I, I don't I don't totally follow so just educate me here yeah, absolutely. So, you know, probably everybody is familiar uh, with the terms uh, Chapter 11 or Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is you're just straight up liquidating the uh, the assets and, you know, whatever's left over at the end of the day, you're distributing back to uh, likely the creditors, maybe, most likely not. The uh, the ownership will get, uh, you know, crumbs, but you're really just, you know, you're trying to give uh, pennies on the dollar to uh, to your creditors. 11 is a, a more of a restructuring clause where uh, you're trying to stay as a going concern coming out of bankruptcy. Uh, the creditors are going to have to take a haircut, uh, but the ownership often gives up control of the business and uh, basically hands it back to the creditors. And it's not a great situation for, for the ownership of the company going through an 11. It helps the creditors out and tries to get them as much as they can in terms of their initial investment, uh, but it's not a great situation for everybody. Chapter five is actually a bit different. So it's a code under number 11. Uh, it's a it's a newer filing. It was something that was put uh, passed by Congress in early 2020. And it gives small businesses the chance to get through the court systems quickly, efficiently, with as minimal cost, you know, to uh, either having to hire somebody like me, an insolvency attorney, you know, auctioneers, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody like a Gordon Brothers, as low cost as possible, but ownership retains control. So ownership comes out, out comes out the other side, and they still have control uh, control over, over the company. So that's the that's the the nuance difference between a, an eleven and a subchapter five. So typically in that process, the borrower, like you're saying, they retain control, and are they getting you know a reduction of principal that's owed on the outstanding debt? Or are they getting some kind of you know? Uh, deferred payment schedule? Or are they getting, you know, do the, do the terms of the loan change as well as the total outstanding amount? Yeah. And I get a lot of questions uh, about this uh, in terms of, you know, how do I use subchapter five to my, to my benefit when I'm, when I'm buying a business? And, you know, it's often a case where you can come in in one of two ways. You can either snag the company up before, before they file, 
go go in with a little bit of hopium uh, into the courts, uh, into uh, diving into the court systems, and basically present a plan to a judge to say, "This is what I'm going to do from not, a, not only a cash flow perspective. Here's the costs I'm going to cut. Here are the tactics I'm going to change to improve the uh, profitability of the company." And hope that the judge says, "Yeah, I like this. Uh, uh, we'll move move you through, and uh, we'll establish a, a payout plan to your creditors." So you, as an owner, get to re retain uh, control, but your creditors are going to have to take you know some type of payment plan, and they can't deviate that uh, off that. They're they're no longer able to kind of go back and try to clean clean their assets again. It's a it's it's a bit of a hail mary, and it's not something I particularly want to do as a uh, as an investor. But uh, it it is an investment strategy. It's a, it's a bit of a hail mary. The other way you could do it is you can, uh, which is a little safer. Which um, something I've taken uh, taken a look at is you can come in as a as a diff lender, so a debtor in possession lender, with some type of conversion to say, hey, I will I will come in. The company is already filed. It's already in the court systems. I will come in with some type of debt structure uh, called uh, called called dip lending, but I'm going to apply a conversion uh, while I'm in, while in the court systems. That if we can get out of this uh, out of this mess and get the company back on a cash flow perspective, something along the restructuring line triggers you to actually become a part of ownership. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so big hail mary uh, pre filing after filing. You're um, you've got a little bit more protection, but you're still coming in and trying to turn around a um, a broken company with a, with a deadline. All right, that's cool. That's a helpful survey. All right, so going back to peeled, they're they're burning about two and a half million dollars in cash. Revenue's been cut in half. You get called in. There's a PE group and and a group of investors who are saying, "Hey, uh, we're we're not going to keep funding losses, basically, right?" Yep. And and what happened? So uh, you know, so when we uncovered fraud, we said this this company has to go through chapter uh, subchapter five. We actually didn't initially intend to uh, to put it through subchapter five, but when we when when you combine management fraud with a bad balance sheet, then we had no choice. So it's a case where it was pushed through, uh, pushed into uh, into subchapter subchapter five, and we basically managed it with the U.S. trustee's office, kind of breathing down my neck. So I, I had emails constantly pop up from the Department of Justice, and I always got a little a little nervous when I saw them That's pop fun. up because I thought I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but no, that was that was never the case. So you have somebody watching you very very closely. You have to report constantly back to them, which is why it's a it's a tricky situa situation to be in. Uh, but we put, I thought, what together was a really good turnaround plan to um, that the courts did uh, did end up buying off on it and putting us back into a payment plan, which would allow us to kind of get those sales back up to the twenty five million. That would flow much more cash uh, back to the business than obviously a, a, an eleven twelve million dollar business burning burning two and a half million in um, yeah in uh, cash every year. What what were their debt service obligations on an annual basis, kind of prior to this process, and then what did they get changed to? Yeah, it's um, you know, so yeah, a lot of it was a revolving uh, revolving uh, loan with short short terms. Uh, a lot of them were coming due, and then um, you know, really what you're kind of hoping for from a um, from a subchapter five process is a five year spread of that of some type of reduced debt. So it's usually kind of fifty to seventy percent. On the dollar for uh, for creditors plus over over five years, so that gave me that gave me pause to say, okay, I'm going to sit there and do a cash flow model. I'm going to see what um, uh, what I can what I can realistically pull off uh, in a short period of time because uh, the courts are not going to sit and let uh, let you figure it out for two years. 
you have to do it pretty quickly. You have to say, I, I can enact um, improvement in cash flows in kind of six to nine months. So again, it's it's a um, you're you're getting a business pretty much at, at its liquidation value, which is uh, you know sounds appealing, but then you've got kind of a a, a clock you know uh, you know counting down every single day where you've got six to nine months to make this make this work. And we I think you know we we knew from uh, you know from our industry experience and from our uh, history doing doing turnarounds that this could be done in six to nine months and and sold back off to a, a uh, to another investor. In this case, did it? Cha- it didn't change hands right during the turnaround. The owners brought you in for a fee to come turn it around, so that they could get to the point where they were going to exit. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Girdley, what kind of questions do you have? I'm I'm peppering Michael over here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're doing a great job with this one. Um, do Do you want to move on to deal number two? And then I definitely yeah. have more questions about how. I definitely want to dig into how aspiring acquirers can leverage this segment of the market because it's new to all of us. So, yep. Um, all right, Girdley, hit us with ad number two and then we'll go to deal number two. All right, man. I am so excited to be so commercial um, <laughs> today. Uh, so, today, uh, our second advertiser uh, is actually another podcast. So, pretty cool. Um, they've been with us for a couple episodes now. And it is uh, acquiringminds.co. Um, so pretty fun podcast. So Mills, I don't know if it's happened on some of the the episodes that you've missed, but this was our first advertiser who wrote uh, a script for me to read that actually allows me to make fun poke, of myself. Poke fun at so, us, yeah, yeah, yeah. So perfectly good. So um, yeah, acquiring minds. Uh, so for for those of you that are friends of Acquisitions Anonymous, you know we mostly hate the deals we look at. Acquiring minds is for deals the other end of the spectrum. It's for deals that happen. So software businesses and follows the journey of uh, say like this guy Jason here who bought a forty five year old software business. Um, or different people who've bought businesses, what they learned, and bringing those lessons into the into the podcast. So, um, Will and his team, I think, have put together a pretty good, fun podcast that um, has more positivity than ours. <laughs> <laughs> so, definitely encourage you to take a look at it uh, and acquire. It's at acquiringminds.co, and it is available wherever you get your podcast. Uh, Acquiring Minds is the name of that one. So, on to the next one. All right, Michael, give us give us deal number two, and this is one that we're going to keep we're going to keep anonymized uh, as the name of the podcast implies. Yeah, this this one I actually uh, like a lot more from like an investment perspective. This would be a, <laughs> this one one uh, would probably be a little more interesting to, uh, to to your listeners. Where I don't want to deal with court systems, you know, frankly from from my my risk tolerance and how much pain I want to deal with. Um, I'm dealing with dealing with the court systems, and you know, I learned firsthand with Peel is not not enjoyable. Um, when you get to um, just simply straight up negotiate with creditors and um, and kind of current ownership, that's when you know you start having a little bit more fun, kind of wheeling and dealing and trying trying to fix businesses. Mm-hmm. So this one was a uh, a fifty year old uh, Midwest big box retailer, about ten locations, um, you know, through the heart uh, heartlands of the U.S. and had a string of profitable years, many many profitable years, but kind of. Started taking it on the chin 2017, 2018, when, you know, Amazon um, and kind of the world started catching up with them. Being in, you know, smaller communities, um, you know, being kind of uh, having a loyal uh, following kept them insulated for as long as he possibly could being in, being in retail. But finally, you know, the Home Depots and the, the Amazons and the e-commerce of the world finally, finally caught up to them. And 
you uh, combine it with a uh, an ownership who are very knowledgeable in the industry, but not necessarily passionate on a day to day basis because that you know it was a long term family business. They kind of made their money, kind of pass it off to uh, dispassionate uh, uh, management to run the business. You know, as I as soon as I walked into the stores uh, when we got, got brought on by um, by the senior creditor was I saw empty shelves, um, I saw uh, outdated inventory, and then when you start peeling back the onion and we saw um, bad uh, warehouse management practices, uh, kind of broken broken communication chains between the store and head office, and I, I thought, this business is fixable. This is a very, very fixable um, business where we can do a lot more with it. You know, for, for example, I, had, I saw inventory that I kid you not, was sitting on the shelf when Bill Clinton was in office. So it had been sitting there for so, so long, uh, you know, that had, uh, the box had, uh, boxes had literally discolored, uh, uh, be, uh, sitting under fluorescent lights for, you know, for two decades. So I'm like, there, there's a lot, there's a lot here that we can do with it. I don't have to put it through the bankruptcies. Um, I've got a senior creditor who's willing to give us some time, uh, and go, um, you know, take a pause on, uh, foreclosing on the assets. And, you know, I can, I can really make this one work. So that's where we kind of sunk our teeth into it. We had recapitalized the balance sheet with us, uh, us coming into the, uh, into the capital stack. And so said, Mike, Michael, real, real fast, uh, digging into the, re, we really can make this work. What you, you, you let off with talking about the headwinds at this business, which is sounded like kind of a generic home specialty retailer, kind of competing with the Home Depot and some of the, the folks like that, like you're, you got these huge headwinds of Amazon and Home Depot and Lowe's and whoever else they're competing with having massive economies of scale and efficiencies that come from that also. Besides the fact that this was just a horribly run business, what made you comfortable that the headwinds were something you could overcome? One thing, one thing I really liked about them was I didn't have to do a lot of uh, capex. There, I didn't have to like completely redo the stores. I didn't have to, um, you know, re redo the signage outside or the website or the or the distribution centers. Those were pr pretty good shape. What was really what was really lacking was what people uh, had the opportunity to buy. And when you started taking a look at the uh, the metrics of the company, and you know, you, you've got to take a look at uh, what are the key metrics in any in that particular business. And you know, with retail, it's how many people are walking in the door every day. And how much are they walking out of the door in terms of in terms of their average order value? And even though they had some of the worst inventory turnover I'd ever I'd ever seen out of any retailer, they were turning it over kind of once per year. Which you know, if you look at a Home Depot, they're turning it over twelve to fifteen times a year. The foot traffic had really not dropped off all that much in uh, in a ten year period. So ten ten years ago versus today, even though um, sales had dropped off quite a bit. The number of people who are walking in the stores was still pretty steady. They're just buying a whole lot, a whole lot less. And that's because they didn't that? have the inventory. They just didn't have the, they didn't. Yeah. What, I mean, what's defensible about that business, right? As you think about it, is it because they own their locations? Is it because they're in markets too small to support some of those? Like why, why even when you fix that thing, are you not scared of Home Depot? Uh, a little bit of a little bit of both both those uh, situations, but what I um, what really uh, got my eye was they had categories that uh, you would not find in a Home Depot. These guys were selling chicken roosts and things directly to um, you know to uh, to rural rural communities that Home Depot would never would never touch. They had ca they had specific categories and products and relationships mm -hmm. with suppliers 
that uh, you know home uh, you know a Home Depot or Amazon just couldn't compete on, and that's mm-hmm. that's what I what I really liked. They just weren't you know updating those relationships. They weren't uh, you know keeping them fresh. It was it was really a fault of the business, not of the supply chain, and that's why I thought we could turn this business around quite quickly. Because again, in any any turnaround situation. Um, you're gonna, you have a clock running against you. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a case where you can buy the business for book value, um, to, you know, to an, uh, you know, a discount on intrinsic value when, when it's an out of court situation, but then, uh, the down, that's the upside, but the downside is, you, you know, in order to keep the creditors at bay and keep them sweet, you have to do, do this fairly quickly. You have about 12, you know, six to 12 months when you're dealing with an out of court situation to show real progress. So, Michael, quantify this one a little bit for us. What what kind of was revenue? What it did revenue fall? What did it fall to? And then what was happening from an earnings perspective in the business? Yeah, it went from forty to thirty uh, to thirty million. Um, and the, you know, they the, over how long? Uh, it was a, much more of a slower burn. Um, didn't have as many as much COVID impact as you know uh, as our first as our first case did. Um, I would say that was probably over a two, two or three year period, kind of that the, uh, that burn burn down. Uh, but it, you know, once you once you start getting into out of stock situations, uh, it's you know you start getting into a death spiral where um, you know you you know your sales drop and then you run out of cash to be able to pay your vendors and then your vendors um, start short shipping you and then you then you don't have as many much inventory to sell. Then you don't you can't pay your AP. Then they, they like then they put you on credit hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know what? What happens? You know, suddenly, you know, gradually, all of a sudden, happens suddenly, and that's what happened. Happened to these guys. So, with some fresh capital, fresh capital, and good, uh, you know, new inventory, I thought we could restock the shelves pretty quickly. What was their earnings at forty million, and what was it when you kind of got involved at, at thirty million in revenue? In, in the good years, they're pumping out, you know, four to six million in in uh, bottom line every year. Uh, we thought we could, mm-hmm. even if we got it back to half that. You know, we we can that that'd be a, a huge swing in, in the enterprise value of the company. Yeah, and then what was it when you got involved? What were the earnings when it got down to thirty million in revenue? Uh, they they were losing about two two to two and a half million a year. In ca- in okay. Capron. And and in this case, you, one of the notes you gave us about it is you know, family run business. It sounds like um, no outside capital, working with one lender. You know, in a smaller market, and the lender obviously is kind of tiptoeing around. You know, hey, we have a lot of exposure here, but mm-hmm. also we have relationship exposure. We don't want to be the bad guy who foreclosed on you know this major employer. You know that type of situation. What were their debt service obligations like to this one, you know, this one lender? I'm thinking good times, right? If you're doing, you know, five, six million dollars in earnings, you know, your debt service obligations are, are fine. Yeah, you know, they had they had term loans. Uh, so basically what they had uh, done uh, several years prior is to upgrade the stores. Uh, they had borrowed against the real estate. So they'd taken out uh, kind of longer, longer term loans uh, to, to do store to do store upgrades and then had a revolving line to uh, to, to pay for inventory. So what, where they got in trouble was, was as soon as, uh, you know, revenue drops, they couldn't, um, you know, fulfill the, 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 the term, term loans anymore. And that's what the bank stopped back and said, uh-oh, we're, we're in a bit of trouble here. And, you know, if you're, if you're taking a look at it from a creditor perspective, they were a smaller bank. Uh, they're probably facing a lot of pressure from other COVID-impacted uh, businesses. Even though this was not a COVID-impacted business, there are other, other borrowers were, and they probably just needed a, uh, an exit or uh, some type of quick, um, you know, quick recapitalization of the balance sheet, which is what, what gives, which was what gets me excited. So when I see 
When I see a, a bank that's desperate, when I see ownership with a lot of personal guarantees, which which is what they had on uh, a lot of the loans, and a business that I think could be turned around quickly without having to put a lot of additional capital into it above and beyond just the acquisition um, of it, then that's what that's what gets me really excited. Mm-hmm. So what what were their debt service obligations? What was it on an annual basis? Uh, just ballpark. Yeah, it was about, uh, about about a million, million and a half a year. Okay. And they're burning cash. So they, they can't, they can't meet those obligations. What's the nature of investing in a deal like this? You're, you're getting involved and the company probably needs an infusion of cash. They also need, like in your case, you could potentially facilitate an, you know, an infusion of cash, but also, Hey, we're going to, we know how to speak to your creditors to give you some breathing room and maybe, you know, renegotiate the terms of your loan. But, but like, what's the nature of investing in something like this? Like this isn't on bizbysell.com. It's probably not listed by a traditional investment bank because those guys want companies that are going to sell relatively quickly and sell for high multiples because they have cash flow. Uh, yeah, this is a case where um, you either know a turnaround specialist, uh, a restructuring firm like, like ours who can uh, create that deal flow for you. Or you have uh, you have your own kind of built-in uh, network of senior, senior bankers as special asset bankers who will come in and say bring you bring you onto deals when they're when they're struggling mm-hmm. with a file. Frankly, they uh, bank- so in in this case though, are you if you're investing in something like this, you're you're writing a check right to get some cash on the company's balance sheet, which also makes the lender feel a little bit better about renegotiating terms. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, it's you know it's the bank having a conversation with the current ownership saying. You're in trouble. Um, you're not fixing it. We can either do one of two things: we can either foreclose on the loan, or it, you find somebody come in and help you. So they they've basically mm-hmm. done the work for you and put a gun to their head. And you know sometimes you get a real pushback. You know sometimes you have a, a long term legacy family business and they don't want to give up any any equity. Sometimes they have no choice, or they're they're going to you know basically you know lose, lose the business. In this type of case, yeah. This does the family retain control. Uh, they re- they re- retain control in this case. Yes, we do. We do not take uh, more than fifty one percent. So, so minority investor comes in, helps shore up the balance sheet, and also say, "Hey, look, we're gonna we're gonna roll up our sleeves and we're gonna help you get from point A to point B. Point A is where you are right now, losing money. You know, you're in a tight spot with your lenders. Point B is we're cash flowing. Your lenders are satisfied, and structurally, the business has has kind of changed and maybe modernized or whatever." The playbook might be. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's correct. I, I want the bank to do the work for me and convince the uh, convince the owner, who may or may not be reluctant, that it's in your best interest to bring on bring on capital help. You know, sometimes it's uh, they don't do go quite that far, and it's you know you're just helping them from a uh, an advisory standpoint. Uh, but a, a lot more times, it's a uh, I need more capital into the business. Your balance sheet is is not strong enough to support. You know what's owed to me, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna call the loan if um, you know if I don't if I don't get that, and that's kind of that that sweet spot of what I really like with um with with turnarounds where you're getting a business somewhere in between kind of that book value and a deep discount on intrinsic value, um, and then you're um, you know you're coming in with a skill set that they may not have, and ca- uh, capital that you may uh, they may or may not have, and then kind of you know finding that that delta by doing doing the turn. What's the typical hold period for an investment like this, Michael? I mean, is it something where, you know, you're in this for 12 to 18 months and then the family's taking you out or how, how, what's the typical duration? Yeah, you know, it's about a one, one to two years. It's, it's, it, okay. we're, we're here for, uh, you know, for a good time, not for a long time. Um, so 
if it's a, if it's a <laughs> really sweet business, uh, which don't come along all that often, will will stay longer. Uh, if they have you know some real um, you know growing market with a proprietary product, that is. Um, it, you know that we can see a lot more runway on we'll stay stick around longer but oftentimes it's more just you know fixing fundamentals in the business shoring up the balance sheet we've done that we've got the business back and uh, and away it goes uh, we'll, we'll we'll on to that okay. yeah what percentage of your business is actually you know having some skin in the game by being on on the cap table bringing some of that capital or you know having having uh, lps come in with you uh, and then what percentage is just doing it as a service? Uh, pretty much every single business needs needs more capital. Um, I would say about you know 25% of the time we'll, we'll join the, the stack and 75% of the time we'll, we'll raise it either through um, you know, more debt or, uh, or an equity raise. Got it. But some of that might... But yeah, so it sounds like 75% of the time you're just a fee-based service provider and 25% of the time you show up on the cap table, put your own capital yeah. in or bring, yeah, it, it's make, it's make it's sense. our own capital we're not you know we're not pulling in outside advisors um oftentimes it's a um you know we, we we're just not comfortable with the situation or we don't like the situation uh, and it's it's better it's better suited for somebody with a more of a longer term uh structure timeline in mind or um you know maybe a different different skill set uh, or a different risk tolerance so you know 25 percent of the time we'll we'll actually uh you know join the deal and uh you know benefit that way yeah and then how do, if people want, it sounds like there's a benefit to turning yourself into a somewhat of a turnaround specialist. If you want to invest in them as well, there's synergy there for your business. And maybe you can argue with that premise. But my real question is, how do people actually get into the turnaround business? Like what's the, what's the career path that kind of gets you there? And, and, and how does that work? Yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of people are other former business owners like myself. Or they've come up through, you know, like a Deloitte or an Ernst and Young, who already have, you know, turnaround, you know, tur- you know, turnaround spaces within their within their firm. We've got a lot of ex bankers, uh, you know, in this in this space, uh, and a lot of, a lot of you know uh, uh, reform lawyers who uh, you know who want, who want to move into this. So you know, a lot of my colleagues um, and myself, you know, are former, you know, who have done this in a um, whether we liked it or not, in a uh, you know, in our own business sense. Uh, and we, you know, we want to join a bigger capital pool, or uh, you know, uh, get get more of a deal flow. So we, you know, we uh, join or start start our own firms. So, do you guys tend to specialize in stuff? It sounds like you're very much a CPG slash retailer. Do other folks specialize in other categories, financial services firms, or tech, or that kind of thing? Yeah, it's um, uh, you know, so myself as like you know, I'm, I'm very uh, focused on CPG. Uh, any any type of consumer product, it doesn't have to be to the consumer. I do B B two B as well. Uh, retail. Uh, our firm will, is pretty much an industry agnostic, though. We'll do a whole bunch of different de- deals. We've done medical device companies, com- uh, you know, commercial printers, uh, direct mailing companies, te- uh, you know, tech firms, like a whole bunch of different uh, different uh, verticals uh, we have. If, um, you know, my, my advice for, uh, you know, for the listener here is, you know, probably stick to something you're familiar with, especially kind of for your for your first turnaround. If you if you have a lot of industry knowledge uh, and can kind of pick up those signals, like hey, seventy percent, uh, you know, marketing spend is too much for this uh, for a particular um, for at this stage of growth, and can pick up those KPIs like pretty pretty quickly. I would say that would be the you know kind of the best way of um, you know getting into the turnaround space initially. There's uh, there's also guys for hire, so if you want to get into the turnaround space but uh, need somebody to hold your hand. 
there are turnaround firms out there uh, and turnaround specialists to kind of kind of help guide you along the way, and you can either compensate them, you know, by you know by the hour, or you know, bring them on uh, for a commission or part of the capital stack. And how? So let's say I'm Joe Schmo, right? I know how to go get if I want to become a real estate broker. I know how to go get my first deal. Like I just start networking everybody and call property owners. How how does somebody that wants to say has found that that Sherpa and wants to get into the turnaround space? Like how how are you guys finding and creating deal flow and building a brand for yourself? Is it is it starting cold calling bankers? Is it um, what? How does that all work? Yeah, I would I would uh, that would probably be your, be your best uh, best space to say, hey, I'm uh, you know. I'm, uh, this is the industry I specialize in. This is how much capital I have to deploy. Uh, keep your, you know, keep your eye out for me when um, you know you have a have a have a deal come come across your desk. I'm interested in taking a look at it. Again, you can also leverage somebody like myself who's already you know um, built that network with us and our firm. Uh, if you're saying, hey, I'm, I'm interested in a deal, but I just don't have the time or I'm not, I'm uncomfortable cold calling a bank. Chat with us. I, I I send I send deals to actually Twitter. You know some of my Twitter followers. You know pretty consistently. Uh, actually later later today I'm talking with a Twitter Twitter follower who approached me and said, "Hey, I'm interested in such and such industry. Do you have a deal in mind?" And guess what? I have I, I have a deal like that. Um, you know to have him look at like immediately. Yeah, because it's you know it's, it's it's something we've uh, we've invested in, but we're also like very uh, very keen on uh, uh, you know having that more longer term capital piece. We're kind of halfway through the turnaround, but you know I need to start finding the capital now to you know kind of pa- pass it off, and you know I'm bring I'm bringing him into it. Super cool. I know some guys that did turnarounds in the amusement space. So like when they would be underperforming like amusement parks and stuff, they would go in and fix them. And after about twelve years, they decided the quality of life was so bad in their forties. They were like, "We're done. Like we can't do this anymore <laughs> because it was just." going from one fire to the next that was never really caused by them. So, you know, is, is this an industry that you see a lot of 60 year olds running around or is it, is it a young man's game or a young woman's game? Uh, ho- hopefully it's coming through the camera here that, uh, that I am a younger guy. Um, uh, you know, still got, still got the hairline going on here, but cause you tell me about uh, yeah, your I'm, job and, and I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm, about, I'm yeah. about 15 years older than you, I think. And I'm like, Oh, that yeah. sounds awful. It's not, it's not for the faint of heart. It, you know, to be honest with you, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not, it's not putting money into Apple and hoping, uh, you know, you get a two, a two X return or Bitcoin or whatever. It's, it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a challenge. It's, there's a lot, uh, um, there's a lot of, uh, pitfalls you got to have to go through and a lot of, uh, stick handling. Uh, I had to, you know, I've had I've had days where I've had to fire ten people in a day. Um, there's other days where I've had to, you know, deal with screaming bankers or um, you know vendors who are, who are not getting paid. And so it's not not for the faint of heart. Uh, there's definitely some significant upside uh, that can can be had with the with the, with uh, distressed turnarounds. But you have to have that mindset and that the patience to be able to kind of see the process through. Let's talk about that just really quick, Michael. So if you think about the universe of investable assets and the risk reward trade off. And expected rates of return. So, you know, public market equities trade at, you know, EV to EBITDA of, you know, 20 times, right? And so you you invert that and you say, okay, my expected return on this might be five to six percent a year annualized. Real estate might trade a six or seven percent cap rate or whatever it is. Lower middle market, you know, uh, businesses that sell in the SMB space might trade for anywhere from three to five times, you know, cash flow. 
So unlevered, you can kind of do the math on what the yield is there. What What's the expected return profile of something like this, given that it is highly illiquid, right? And a lot of it is contingent on completely changing course in the business. It seems like with all that risk priced in, the expected rates of return, you have to be compensated for yeah, that. Yeah. If, if I'm not getting a 5 to 10x on on these investments, then I'm not interested. It's just not, it's not worth the, uh, the headaches and the uh, uh, the 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 pains that you're going to be dealing with going through a turnaround. Uh, so if I can't five to 10, uh, 10 X my capital, then I'm moving on to the next deal, which is often what, uh, which is often what we see. And probably one of the main reasons why we uh, just do it as a capital, uh, um, you know, as an advisory and not with capital, because we don't feel like we can get that five to 10 X. Interesting, man, this is, this is so cool. It's, it's really, really fascinating. Gurdley, any other questions you have before we wrap up? No, thank you so much, Michael. This is super cool. Uh, and and big thanks to our sponsors again. Um, give give you one more shout out yeah. um, to say thanks. Acquiringminds.co, so podcast about uh, people who've done successful small business acquisitions, and then the uh, tinyacquisitions.com, uh, the website where you can go to buy small side projects for less than ten thousand dollars and make them your own business. Big thank you to our sponsors, Michael Yarmo. Uh, as as we kind of fade out. Uh, how can our listeners and, uh, and, and the folks who tune into this podcast on YouTube, how can they support you? How can they keep in touch with you and follow what you're doing? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Michael Yarmo. Um, you, I've also got a, uh, sub stack where, uh, you know, I'm posting stuff on, uh, on the distress industry all the, all the time, been a little bit slower lately with the, uh, with the newborn, uh, kind of taken up a lot of my time, but uh, I posted quite a lot of content over there. And also, I, I do offer a link to uh, the dailydac.com, uh, which is a deal flow site uh, for more distressed. Uh, oh, I think Michael's AirPods died. <laughs> Our, uh, I have checked out Michael's. Oh, maybe, his, maybe <laughs> we his lost Michael. Oh, he's got a Substack um, too and a good Twitter. I, I have I have really enjoyed his Substack. It's uh, I, I really enjoy his newsletter writing, and um, it's it always is kind of cool to see the other side of the the other side of the coin, so to speak, with distressed investing. Well, we'll, we'll get, we'll get Michael Yarma back here at some point, but we can, we can wrap up for now. And, um, thanks everybody. We'll see you again next week. Awesome. Awesome. Go Chili's. Happy Halloween. <laughs> <laughs>